She's Julie Roxanne. And he's Alistair. And And this this is Far Out. A podcast about stepping off the beaten path and learning to live from our center. There's something deeply ingrained in them about eating that blubber. So you mean we can't just send them vitamin C supplements? Yeah, yeah. So that was my first experience with Narwhals, was actually eating one, which was not exactly what I had pictured. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the hubris of man, thinking we can be like... (laughs) We're gonna manage this forest. It's been around millions of years. And it's like, <laughs> doing fine. Yeah, it's doing just fine, right? Well, hello, beautiful people, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Far Out Podcast. Welcome. You're gonna be excited today, people, because we have a rare interview. A rare interview. <laughs> we were just reflecting on how little we have people on the podcast. We these would days. like to have more. Um, it's we're just a matter honestly, of logistics. We're just it's yes, and it's also like we like to find organic yeah. things that flow naturally that we don't have to like pursue. Like that's not really I, our I'm job. I'm not trying to pick up anyone doing their book tour. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, we're not. That's not our jam. And nope. so an example of that is that today we are talking with Ian, Ian Q. Rowan, the steward, steward, steward of Trot Creek Wilderness Lodge, where we've been living for the last two months. And uh, before we we asked him about how we'd like to be introduced, and and he told us he used to carry around a business card that said, I do nothing well. Yes, but that sums up, like, Ian is a fantastic human being. He's a man of many hats. He is definitely a conservationist and an environmentalist in some very interesting ways, and a very creative person, a longtime burner. Um, he's been going to Burning Man for over 10 years. And uh, just a just a very, very interesting person. And we were and also, very honored to have him on the podcast. And he also happens to be uh, producing and making a documentary about narwhals. Oh, how could I forget that? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't know. He's just, he's done so much. He's lived so many places. He's the kind of guy that I could live with in the same house for like two months and still not know the full extent of everything he's done. I mean, th- I think this will give you a little bit of a picture is we were not able to go into his early life living on a sailboat till he was 12 or the multiple times he almost died traveling on a motorcycle through South America. We didn't even touch those topics. Yeah. Because there just wasn't time. And then, you know, he's that kind of guy who's like, and this happened when I was living in Paris and then I was living in Australia and I'm like blown away. And uh, I mean, we're travelers and we're blown away from <laughs> where this guy's been. So... As we uh, as we get into this, um, we had a tech failure. Our mic went down, and uh, luckily Julie Roxanne was uh, was was on top of it, and we had a second recording going. But it started a little late, so you're going to miss the intro to this episode. Um, and it starts with me asking Ian about his very wonderful beard. Ian has a huge beard. It's uh, it's very old and ancient. And uh, that's where we start this conversation. And we're going to come in mid-sentence. Yeah, and I think the beginning of that sentence was that he's had the beard for 10 years. And then he ends up saying it's he's watched it gray in that time. And then just let yourself be carried along the conversation. Yeah. Let's, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Watched it gray in that time. And now it's. I always wanted to be... A silver fox. So I've achieved that, I think. <laughs> um, because was it was it like black when w- it was like calico? I called it my calico kitten beard. Oh, so yeah. So it was like red, brown, and a little bit of silver. And then um, I started doing the narwhal project uh, when I was living in Paris. Created a Kickstarter. Wait, I didn't even it. know you lived in Paris. This uh, is yeah. why we wanted to have Ian on the podcast because the guy we could talk to him for like weeks and still not know the full extent of his life. So you were living in Paris. See, we oui. where uh, the sixth arrondissement, right by the Arc de Triomphe. Oh my God, fancy! Yeah. Very fancy. I had a free apartment. I was like, yeah, for a little bit. Yeah. So I was with my partner Jamie at that time and. 
we had just left Esalen and lived there for uh, a couple years, and she had lived there for five. I had always been into narwhals, and anyways, I started a Kickstarter um, with her support and decided I'd probably end up going to the Arctic to see narwhals in person and film. And so I was like, I should probably have a beard to stay warm up there. And so I have not shaved since. Wow. And uh, the narwhal documentary was supposed to, I was hoping like six to eight months. It's now (laughs) 10 years. And we're looking to have it finished this winter. But it ended up being like a six-year court case to the Supreme Court of Canada. I ended up going with the Inuit on a hunt to the narwhal in like a couple of years after starting to grow the beard. And it's been a wild beard journey since. <laughs> and I'll be ready to shave it once the film is done and premiered. Which, which you think you're hoping to finish the, the editing this winter. Yeah. So can you describe... Um, I'm not even sure everyone listening would know what a narwhal is, to be honest. Yes. So could you describe the narwhals and how you... Why did you take an interest in the narwhals? Yeah, what the, what the fuck? Yeah, it's a weird one. A lot of people really don't know what narwhal, narwhals are. So if you're one of them, take faith that many people also uh, are ignorant of the fact. But it's a wonderful to learn that narwhals are real. It's where the myth of the unicorn comes from. And they are a cetacean, a type of whale closely related to the beluga. And they only live in the Arctic. So they're up in the you know, the Arctic Circle uh, between Greenland and Baffin Island, uh, northern Canada, Nunavut, uh, an indigenous sovereign nation. So they are very striking for, you know, one thing uh, in particular is they have a tusk, that uh, tooth, technically, that comes out of their lip, and it can be up to 10 feet long. And that is where the myth of the unicorn comes from, because the Vikings used to hunt in Svalbard Island area, and they would take the tusks back and sell them to Europeans. But being Vikings, they wouldn't say what animal it came from or where to protect their fishing grounds. So slowly the myth of the unicorn came up in the the tusks were very valuable and had magical properties, including nullifying any poison in your wine. And um, the Danish throne is built out of 72 narwhal tusks. And Queen Elizabeth I spent a thousand pounds sterling for <laughs> a, a, a particularly amazing specimen, apparently, of a narwhal tusk. And Queen Elizabeth I at that time. A thousand pounds would build a castle. Oh my God! What? Sheesh! So they were intensely valuable, and if you're, you know, a landed gentry aristocrat, you would have a narwhal tusk on your mantle or somewhere. And if you had a large gathering to make a treaty or something like that, you would shave bits of the narwhal tusk into everyone's wine to prove that. It, even if you, that it was poisoned, it would nullify it. Oh wow, that is crazy! I'm like my mind is blown because I mean I knew I know what it looks like, but first off, it's a tooth. Yeah, that's a really fascinating tooth. So a lot of the documentary is is with Dr. Nawia, this Harvard professor of dentistry that has been studying the uh, tusk tooth for the last 15 years, doing Arctic expeditions and testing, and it's got millions of nerves in it and little dendrites and holes and so it can sense temperature and water salinity and it's how the whale figures out spots to breathe because they are the second deepest diving whale in the world they go down a mile and a half in the arctic oh feed and so it's pitch black down there and they because the tusk is actually on a little bit of an angle they flip upside down to feed on like arctic char and squid and then when they come back up, they have to find a hole in the ice, uh, referred to as a polinia. And so if you can imagine how sea ice forms, all that saline drops when the fresh water forms mm. more and more ice. So 
areas of thick ice probably have a, more saline underneath them. And then polinias or holes in the ice have either uh, air, warmer air coming over them or sun during the summer. And so the water should be warmer. So the tusk they use to find less saline and warmer water and pop up to breathe. Wow. My God. Yeah. So, okay. Let me back up and ask. Yeah, go back. Going back to my why the fuck. Well, so I mean, now that you're yeah. speaking, <clears throat> I'm understanding a bit more. But I'd like to hear like I, what's I, the genesis? Yeah, like what's going through your mind when you're starting the Kickstarter project? Well, even well, like how how do you even decide that you want to study this? Um, so it, it's I grew up on a sailboat in Central America, and I was kind of a precocious kid and started reading really early at like four or five, all the books in my parents' library. And they happened to have the Jacques Cousteau books, whales, sharks, and dolphins. And so I read all of them and I knew, I saw pictures of narwhals and knew that they existed. But I was in tropical waters in Central America, so we never saw them, but we saw a lot of other whales and dolphins and migrations and really, you know, some amazing stories around that. But um, fast forward to, I don't know what year, but we're fast forwarding. Um, <laughs> and uh, a buddy of mine, Raul, and I had left Burning Man and were do decompressing at Esalen at a friend's that work there. As you do. As, as, you as, do. as one so, does, yeah. So her name was Jamie Sochi. And uh, when we were unpacking the vehicle a narwhal finger puppet rolled out of the back, all dusty from the playa. And we never had that. It just somehow showed up in the car. We never took it there. No idea. So I ended up, you know, Raul and I started talking about narwhals as if they're real because they are real. And we were just discussing what would be so cool to get like James Cameron and get a submersible and go to like a narwhal graveyard and like get a tusk from the deep sea um and like jamie our host pipes up and says why are you guys talking about narwhals as if they're real you know that they're mythological creatures right oh. and we we're like um, actually <laughs> no well jamie uh, yeah, let's yeah. let's have a conversation turns out they're very real so yeah most people think they're e either they've never heard of them they think they're extinct or mythological I would have. I guess my 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 guess would have been extinct. Yeah. I I think I would have fallen in that category. I might have went mythological. Mm. Yeah. I mean, magical, mythological. So, anyways, this finger puppet rolls out. I'm. I end up dating Jamie for years, and she's the one with me in Paris. I'm writing for Men's Journal, doing adventure travel writing, and so I'm flying all over the world with this narwhal finger puppet on my thumb and doing the adventures of Narnar. Oh so everywhere I go, it's like, Narnar was here. <laughs> and then uh, I went to the Amsterdam for something, for some writing thing, and went to the Rijksmuseum. And in the basement there, there were like 30 narwhal tusks. And I'd never really seen one up close and personal. And so then on my cross-Atlantic flight back, Narnar jumped out of the plane and swam back to be with his his folks up in the Arctic. So I never saw Narnar again, but people knew I was into narwhals at that point. And a friend of mine in Ibiza, who I'd met at Esalen, sent me this petition to help the people of Clyde River in their fight to preserve narwhals in the face of oil exploration in the Arctic. So I went down to like a research hole, and then I was living in Paris, and I actually did the Kickstarter in secret because uh, I wasn't sure if my partner would support it. Oh, so I developed the whole thing and like launched it, and then told her about it. <laughs> Turns out she was totally on board, so that was good. Why wouldn't she have been on board? I had some other passion projects that I'd done. <laughs> oh, the Narwhal project wasn't the first, huh? Yeah, I'd done, like, the I Love You Letter project, which is this, like, video love letter in all languages. So we were filming that in Paris with, like, tourists on the street where I have people, like, meditate, breathe deeply for, like, a few minutes and then with their eyes closed and then open their eyes and directly into the camera to the rest of humanity just say, I love you in their language. And then it populates on this website called iloveyouletter.org. Is and it still up? 
Yeah, and so people can go and say their I love yous, they can submit, or they can just be told in their native language wow. that they're sincerely loved. Not a bad passion project. Yeah. So wait, so I just have, so I'm now realizing we were in Paris at the same time. Because yeah. if this was 10 years ago, was it like 2011? Probably. Yeah, I was living in Paris then. Yeah. Man, I could have done that. I love you letter. I wasn't yeah. going to the touristy places, yeah. but maybe I ran into you somewhere. I definitely filmed in front of the Eiffel Tower and parks yeah. and stuff. No, no person that lives in Paris goes have, there. We may have, uh, we may have brushed yeah. the shoulders in a marketplace or, or, or a something. club or something. I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I, did, I still went to clubs there. I, I love <laughs> the fact that you. It seems like you were actually called by the narwhals <laughs> to to do this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, like Jerry, the hero of the documentary, he's really like tapped in, and you know the, the Inuit. Uh, hunt the narwhal and eat the blubber uh, for their main source of vitamin C since they don't have any citrus uh, up in the Arctic. So it's actually, I guess, their survival. Um, and he, he has such a relationship with the narwhal that's like his spirit animal. It comes to him in his dreams. He can no longer go on a hunt of it. So Jerry is an Inuit person? Mm -hmm. that... Jerry Nautanin. Okay. And I... I... I was going to ask, since you, you end up in the Arctic with the Inuits, so I'm curious about your relation, or I'm curious about the Inuits' relationship with the narwhals. So you end up in the Arctic with the Inuit looking for narwhals. Can you tell us a little bit about how they view that animal and how they relate to that animal? Yeah, it's actually quite fascinating in that the Inuits' survival in the Arctic is pretty much dependent upon eating the blubber of the narwhal. They have a very direct relationship with, obviously, all the natural world up there. Seals, birds, lichen, I mean, just you name it, there's, they call it IQ. It's like a ancestral knowledge that's passed down. So... The Canadian government has quotas on how many narwhal they can take each hamlet or village. The one that I went to is called Clyde River. It's the third northernmost habitation in the Arctic Circle. And they have around 350, maybe 500 people that live in the hamlet. And they're allowed to take so, so many per year. To your question about the thinking they might be extinct, they're not even endangered. They're near threatened, which is one step above Uh, endangered. Mm. Um, the estimates are really hard to get right in the Arctic because many factors of like, the Arctic, the Arctic, the Arctic. <laughs> really hard. But they think there's like upwards of 180,000 narwhal. Wow. Um, and then 90% live in Baffin Bay between Greenland and Canada. Uh, none of it. Baffin Island, and then 10% of the population lives in the Svalbard Islands on the eastern side of Greenland. Mm -hmm. So the two populations migrate north in the summer and meet up, and that's their genetic diversity. Oh, um, wow. The really fascinating thing is um, Inuit have, like, it's hard to describe this, like, they when they talk about muktuk, the, the blubber of the narwhal, it's just they just like light up and they're just like muck dog yes i can't wait for it to be fresh again and and the, you can really just see that there's something deeply ingrained in them about eating that blubber do you mean we can't just send them vitamin c supplements no <laughs> yeah well that gets into actually a really another fascinating part about um food security food deserts and food scarcity In those northern communities, there's only one grocery store in each place. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, it has a different name now, but it's originally still has the legacy of being started by the Hudson Bay Trading Company. Mm -hmm. So colonial grocery stores are still there mm -hmm. and they're the only source of food. Mm -hmm. And so if you can imagine it's the Arctic, uh, in the summer, a big container ship will show up with and offload but winter totally inaccessible oh my god so everything can come in on planes like propeller planes or this like container ship um so everything is insanely ins expensive so like 
a small bunch of rotting grapes is $20. What? Like everything is just like really, really pricey. And then imagine what industry right. and what money the Inuit have right. up for their incomes in a small hamlet. And then they have to buy this food. So they really rely on subsistence hunting. Everyone goes out, uh, especially on the narwhal hunts. Those are all, uh, when they have a, a kill, they they cut it up on the spot and then take it back to town. And every, they like radio ahead and all the townspeople come and get their shares. Whoa. And so like, uh, you know, it's the Arctic. There are no lemons and there are no citrus up there so it turns out that the blubber of the narwhal is super dense and high in vitamin c and that's their main source seal meat also has a little bit but you imagine like seals are much smaller and don't have as much blubber um so yeah that's their uh so it's a vital food source for them yeah otherwise they would be getting scurvy and and more than that, it sounds like it's a it's it's like a community thing. I mm-hmm. mean, it sounds like it's a huge uh, event and and ritual almost to go and get it, and then it's like a shared export. Like, it, I how big are narwhals? They're about twenty five to twenty six, twenty eight feet long. Yeah. Um. So they're not like a really large whale. Yeah. Kind of like a big dolphin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. How do they actually hunt these whales? So traditionally, it would be a sealskin uh, kayak um, with harpoons and um, actually a really cool uh, technique of using uh, seal skins that have been sewn, that have been dried and sewn shut and then blown up as flotation buoys. And those are attached to the to the harpoons. And so they would kayak next to the migrating narwhals and harpoon them and the, the seal skin bladders would keep the narwhal from sinking Sink. and then they would drag it to the flow edge and pull it up and then that's where they uh, cut, cut up the blubber wow. um, how, but how? now it's now they use um, high powered rifles oh. which oh, were introduced obviously by the Western trading uh, company. Yeah, traders. And <laughs> so would, would they make the harpoons themselves before that? Yeah, yeah. Everything was, you know, found on the land. Probably, I'm not sure what the the barbs were made out of because I don't think they had much access to metal, Maybe but probably bone. Yeah. Oh yeah, and so so okay. So going back to your your journey, the Kickstarter, you launch it. Your partner's on board, and then. You end up going to the Arctic and hunting with yeah. Inuits? So first, I raised funds to go to Toronto, where Jerry's Clyde River case was being heard by the National Energy Board. So the oil and gas had asked for permission from the Canadian government, which is the National Energy Board that regulates all that stuff, to do a seismic survey of Baffin Bay, which is a really big bay. It's like, you know, huge. And so seismic surveys are these really large ships that tow specific arrays behind them of seismic cannons. And then behind that are hydrophones to pick up the reverbs. So seismic cannons are the loudest man-made noise on earth. It's, uh, 256 decibels every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day as they tow the arrays up and down in grids. So it's uh, the only thing louder than it is an atomic bomb going off. So it's the loudest thing we can possibly make. Sound carries very differently underwater. It propagates. It's, it goes for thousands of miles. So like a, a seismic survey off the coast of Ireland can be heard in Virginia. Whoa. And so if you have these bays they reverb and so you can imagine these massive noises going off uh 24 hours a day um it's been proven that seals go deaf um it's been proven that clams and a a ton of other things as well as phytoplankton half phytoplankton dies which is like the building block of one of the main 
base food sources for a lot of animals. Yeah. So what's the point of those seismic things? So the, the reason it's so loud is they don't care about anything that's in the ocean. Of course. They're looking to go through the sea floor. So it's so loud that it can penetrate through the sea floor. And then the way whatever different sediments, rocks, or liquids like oil will have different reverbs and different uh, time. Okay. So those hydrophones that are being pulled behind are picking up all the sounds. So they're just trying to map out where there's oil. Yeah. Okay. So they feed it all to a supercomputer, do a 3D map, and then they sell that to the exploratory drillers. So it's millions and millions of dollars. We're talking like huge, huge things. So they can probably also be auctioned off and highest bidder, but they're going on all over the world. It's like a very big issue. During Obama's administration, 500 marine biologists and scientists signed this petition to stop it off our coast. It was happening all off the eastern seaboard. So it was banned at that point because it really affects fisheries and everything. So if an economy is dependent upon their fisheries, they'll probably get knocked out. So banned by Obama, overturned by Trump, um, probably still happening off our coast now. Thing is, it's like you know, it's far far out. Most people aren't gonna see it. They only see the tertiary effects of like dead fish, dead dead there, and like reduced catches and things like that. So not much education or knowledge is around its actual effects. And so was that the was that the original impulse? And so you mentioned Jerry a couple of times, but yeah. I would like you to maybe go more into specifics of who he is and what he's doing. So Jerry was the previous mayor of of Clyde River, and he's the one that has a really deep connection to the narwhal. And so this seismic company came to them and asked for their permission to do the seismics in the bay, and that's due to the UN de- Declaration of Indigenous Rights. And in there, there's a subset about uh, prior written uh, informed consent to any development done to indigenous uh, hunting grounds or fishing grounds. Mm. So they came to them, they're like, hey, we're going to do this seismic survey. It's going to be really great for you guys. We're going to hire two of you to be on the ship, look for signs of whales. And if we see some whales, we'll ramp it down until they go away. So it's really great. It's also like totally harmless of course. and all this. And it turned out that in the 70s or 80s, they did a seismic survey. And all along the coast, all the seals went deaf. And so they're you know, grandfathers had passed that knowledge on to them. And so Jerry knew about that. And so they, it caused a a lot of like probably starvation because they would sneak up on these seals and the seals wouldn't react to their footsteps. So then they're like, you know, these seal must be tainted or they must be sick. So they wouldn't eat them. Oh, wow. So then that had like, you know, a cascade effect on the Inuit. So Jerry would, was like, no, you guys cannot do, we don't give consent. And they tried to like do it anyway. So then he got Greenpeace on board, Amnesty International, some celebrities and like 30 nonprofits came to the, to the plight wow. and brought a constitutional lawyer in, Nader Hassan, and they, you know, presented to the National Energy Board. And that's what my Kickstarter was to bring a small team and film and interview Jerry and his cousin Sandy, the narwhal hunter, and a lot of the activists around it. And in that process, I got to know Jerry and Sandy pretty well, and they invited me to come up on the next uh, hunt of the narwhal. And so then it took me a while to raise funds to be able to go all the way up to the Arctic, which is cost prohibitive. Did you catch a narwhal? I was out on the flow edge during the narwhal hunt, and I was out there for a week. We didn't see any narwhal. Whoa. Went back to town, and then I was actually set to, like, fly out. The plane ended up having mechanical difficulties, and so the flight was canceled, thankfully. And so I hitched a ride uh, with another Inuit back out to the flow edge, and that's right when the narwhals came. So just as I got there, I was... A hunt was going on, and they were 
pulling narwhals up, and I ended up uh, eating uh, blubber of the narwhal, fresh from uh, with the hunters. Describe it. <clears throat> it's like it's. It was quite fascinating. It's, it tastes like smoky almonds. Uh, <laughs> it tasted pretty good. But what? But not texture, right? Like, no, texture is like, like blubber. Yeah, like like gelatin. But it, it kind of like was it melted pretty quickly wow. in your mouth. So that was my first experience with narwhals was actually eating one, which was not exactly what I had pictured. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the most important question before we move on from this like pretty fascinating story is: Did the beard keep you warm? That was a funny thing. The beard kept me very warm. I was under the misunderstanding that I was like, oh, anyway, they're, they're up there. They must have beards, too. <laughs> Turns out they can't grow beards. They just have, like, a little bit of a mustache and maybe some stubble. Not many have, or any that I saw, had beards. And so then uh, one day, because the plane had broken down, I no longer had a room to stay in. Like, it had been rented out. So I'd met this... Uh, jewelry maker fisherman he's like my son's out fishing for six months i've got extra room come stay at mine and so i grabbed what i could and borrowed a a sheet and a pillow from the hotel that i could no longer stay at and so i put it into made it into a sack and threw it over my shoulder and was walking through town to go to this guy's house and all the kids uh were running around me going santa claus santa claus (laughs) Santa Claus has made it up there, though. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. yeah. That's, wow. That is crazy. That's just... <laughs> were you, like, outside of that, were you quite the attraction with the beard? Because I'm assuming, I mean, if people can't grow beards, like, how does it... Is that something that came up a lot? Um, A little bit. But, like, my beard, oh. my beard comes up a bit. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Proof is well, we spent half I, an I'm hour. I'm sorry that it. it came up so quickly no. on the podcast <laughs> as well. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe switching gears, and this is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, was you steward this place, Trout Creek Wilderness Lodge. And it sounds like that's actually a fairly recent project. Being but, here full time. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Um, and how long would you say that the the lodge has been kind of operational in the way it is now, like the last five years? Yeah, probably the way it is now. We started building in 2009, something like that, mm. uh, the, the lodge itself. So I was born here, but I, I was a baby when we left on the sailboat, and I never came back till I was like 18 on a summer trip where I hitchhiked cross-country. Um, I love how you just drop these yeah. little things here we're, and there. We're, just I, I'm like, sorry, listener, we're not going to be able to pursue yeah. we're we're not can, We can't pursue yeah. everything. No, it's no, just too dense. Too much. <laughs> Wait for the memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Please. So then um, my dad had the dream of rebuilding this place uh, from what his like great-grandfather had here. The land's been in our family since the late 1800s, and there was a hotel out here with little cabins in the woods and a barn with horses and they would do wilderness tours with pack horses. So my dad asked his mom and she gave her blessing. So he solo handedly just like drug beams down there and built those four cabins by himself. And then we built the lodge, my brother and I, my dad all from one tree that we fell and milled on site. And then That took a while because we would just build. I would come out here with my dad and do like three months in the summer building. And the dream really was to like uh, have our family members that really didn't come out here to have a place to stay and come out here and really connect with the land and fall in love with it and hopefully want to conserve it Mm. uh, ultimately. Uh, It ended up being a bit too rustic for them. And so they really, most of them never came out and then they wanted to log it. Yeah, which is a real shame because this is an absolutely beautiful forest. It's old growth forest. It's absolutely magical. Yeah. Um, So that didn't sit very well with my dad. He couldn't sleep and he was just trying to figure out some way to save the land from being logged by these second cousins that had never really been up here. Mm. 
So with a lot of, you know, struggle over like five years, we were able to vouchsafe it in the interim from being logged and then proposed to the family that we would uh, create a conservation easement that would buy them out of the land so they would get the money that uh, logging would uh, would maybe impart um, while not logging and mm. preserving the land uh, in perpetuity. The only caveat there is the money only comes once and you can never log again. So it's like kind of a perpetuity thing on the deed. So I worked for the last seven years on that. Uh, we had one one attempt and didn't go well or didn't go right. And then this last two years is really why I'm back here was to full-time, part-time manage the place, do improvements, but also do the conservation easement application and grant with the confederated tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Warm Springs and the Siletz, uh native peoples, as well as ODFW, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the BPA, which is Bonneville Power, which was kind of fascinating that Bonneville Power uh, were the, was the company that built all the dams on the rivers in Oregon and probably Washington. And so they destroyed all the salmon runs. And in the, I think, early 90s, uh, the Confederated Tribes sued Bonneville Power for destroying pretty much kind of like actually a, the and their indigenous rights mm-hmm. to consent around, you know, so, their li- their not even livelihood, their like survival, too. Yeah. yeah, and spirituality of the salmon runs. So, in a very big case, they uh, set aside X amount of money, like I think a hundred million dollars from Bonneville Power to buy and protect and put conservation easements on riparian habitats and dismantle some of the dams so this is part of that and so we were successful this summer in a unanimous like decision with bonneville power we were an outlier and ended up going through because they all really want to protect this old growth forest and the we're you know on a creek and a river on both sides so it creates really good uh refugia for salmon and mm. colder waters in the summer. Because have you ever seen salmon up here? Oh yeah, you didn't see them. I don't think I have yet. I've seen many trouts, but not oh, yeah. salmon. We oh, wow. we ate salmon from the river this summer before really? you guys got here. Yeah, they're they're already they've already gone up the creek to spawn, mm. but there were quite a few just well, since you've been here. I'm pretty sure. Really? Maybe we're mistaking them as trout. Yeah, yeah really maybe big. I'm not sure what they look like. I yeah. guess this is the extent of my fish knowledge. I, I need to learn more. I, I'm curious how it sounds like it's been a really long and not so easy process with the conservation uh, easement. Is that how you call it? Yeah. Um, can you just walk us through that a little bit? Or I mean, it's, I mean, it's a lot. I, yeah, so it's like 30 yeah. nonprofits that I that I had to get on board on different aspects of like wildlife and native plant medicines. And mm-hmm. and we had to, it has to be within the same year of the applications. It's doing timber cruises, which are like the valuation of the timber. And those have to be within the year. And all this stuff is really expensive as well as an appraisal a title. And so a lot of bureaucracy, which is, I'm more of a creative writer. Yeah. And so uh, I had to do a lot of it myself with our, our sponsors, uh, um, natural lands management, because that was our agreement. Cause we had already like done a lot of the pre-work, um, on it in the previous application. So I just had to update it and had a lot of help from volunteers. Am stuff. I right in thinking that you just hit a milestone with this project though recently? Yeah, it was unanimously approved. So wow. in the next two years, wow. we're developing right now the conservation easement, the wording of all, like, all perpetuity things and all potential outcomes. Um, and then as well as developing a forestry management plan with uh, a local amazing guy. Uh, and he's coordinating with the Grand Ronde and their forestry management practices because they own a lot of land that they're protecting. So I, I'm curious, how has your perspective changed over this project as far as like, this seems like such a, in a heroic effort on your part 
and um, and such a coordination just to keep a land that's wild wild. It seems like so much com- complexity and mm-hmm. complication. And I'm I'm wondering, like, what is your what is your, like what is your opinion about this? As like, how, how's how's your perspective on this kind of? How's yeah. it changed from this project? Well, I, I realized that apparently it's really easy to log and really difficult to conserve. Mm. Yeah. So, like, you know, when our family members wanted to log this place, it could have been done in, like, from saying yes to, like, four months, maybe six months, and it would be done and sold. And, like, wow. all this would have been destroyed. Um, and then seven years later, I'm trying to conserve it. And also, like, to considerable expense yeah mm-hmm. like a lot in a massive coordination effort yeah so then this is one of the reasons i'm a night owl and i stay up till three four in the morning because i do the daytime stuff here and then i have usually especially during the the conservation easement application process which will ramp up again in a little bit with the development of the plan but yeah, I'm up until three, four in the morning sometimes. Do you do you have any insider ad- advice for maybe uh, other someone else that would like or is an activist or a conser- a conservationist? Um, like, is there anything you would do tell differently? Them? Or, or, or yeah, not do differently, but like, what would you tell that person? Because this seems like such a massive effort and such a it costs so much. Yeah, I think. I think it's one of those things where finding the right partners, like any sort of environmental work, same thing with like the Narwhal project. It was, you know, it was like 20 different nonprofits coming together. Mm. And then same thing here. It was very difficult to find a land sponsor, uh, uh, a nonprofit to sponsor our conservation easement. So I, you know, contacted like 45 different uh, conservation uh, groups and none can do it. It's not in our purview. It's not in our area. So finding a really good, capable partners was really important. And then uh, what Farah Khan, who was a who's in the documentary, a Greenpeace campaign organizer, uh, what she says in the film is that you know uh, anyone can make a difference. You just find the right people and passion and you can change the world. So mm. I think it's really finding the right people that care because a lot of this is like unpaid passion work and you, yeah, can't really do it on your own. Yeah. Can you talk about, I think kind of going back to the question Alistair was asking about your own personal journey and, and with that, mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious, like, how do you, can you talk about where inside of you that passion comes from and what it feels like for you? Like, is it, yeah, just what, in your own words, how would you, because I'm assuming there are times where you're just like, fuck this, I can't <laughs> yeah. do this, but you keep going back to it yeah. and you keep putting the effort to, to save this land. And I'm just really curious how that, what words would you use to talk about that? Well, one of the things I noticed when I became a teenager is I witnessed my friends rebelling against their parents and like doing the opposite thing. And I, I spent a day one day and I just like sat and thought and realized I like had a really amazing upbringing, loved my parents, had a lot of love from them and they're fucking awesome. And I was like, my rebellion from my parents is going to be like, continue their rebellion Mm. to like follow my own path. But like, I'm not just going to do the opposite of them for the sake of doing the opposite. So my dad has been very deeply touched by this land, grew up here as great uncle, um, lived out here, stewarded the land and taught him about the plants. My dad's a huge fan of the ferns. We got to like always protect the ferns. And he loves to draw them. And so when he convinced my mom to move from Hawaii and live out here and it would take him two years to build a sailboat, it took 12 and three boys later, um, he, you know, was the steward of the land. And in our family and the generations that has been passed down, 
it has skipped people that are not conservation-minded. So my dad became the conservation-minded steward, but due to exponential increase in, you know, how humanity goes, there were like 14 landowners at the, that point, and a lot of them had no connection to the land. And though I, I was born here as a baby when I left, I only really came back when I was like 17, 18, and then sporadically after that, I just imagined this land clear-cut. It's old-growth forest. It's right on a river and a creek, and there's like so much wildlife that relies on this place and such ancient trees. I just, like my dad, I, can, I yeah, wouldn't be able to sleep with myself if I hadn't done everything I could do to help preserve it so that other people can experience this. Yeah. This, like We think of it as like better than a national park because like we don't manage it. Like, uh, you know, like the hubris of man thinking we can be like, <laughs> we're going to manage this forest. <laughs> it's been around millions of years. And it's like doing fine. Yeah, it's doing just fine, right? It's got mushrooms growing everywhere. They're taking care of it. They're decomposing. So you don't think we need to rake the leaves out? Uh, no, not like Norway. <laughs> Giant rakes, like space balls. <laughs> Come the desert. <laughs> Rake the forest. No, so it's taking care of itself. It's a primordial forest. People like you guys get to come out here and like literally be in what the Malala would have walked through or feasted on the river and with salmon and berries. And it's all still here. And... As you guys have witnessed, you bring people out here, they fall in love with the land. Yeah, it's not hard like, to do. It's very, like, transformative. It's and, incredibly healing. Yeah. It's it's. I, I actually recently, uh, this is really my first experience being in an old growth forest, and th which is crazy to think. Like, this is my first experience, ex like, th with this. And... I think, you know, the first few weeks, I was like, wow, this is really magical. This is really beautiful. And... Oh, last weekend I went up to Washington and I organized a women's gathering and this woman had a land that she has a cabin, it's off grid. And so she, she allowed us to use that land. And part of me was kind of expecting something like this. And it ended up, it's ended up being, it's, it's, it's great. It was wonderful for what we needed. And it was, you know, a piece of nature that welcomed us, but it ended up being, in the middle of logging sites, you pass on the side and it's like just trees being farmed. And then, and then it just struck me how much, like, I thought I knew, I knew what forests were. And, but now that I'm here, I'm like, no, I had no idea what forests are. This is, this is a forest. Yeah. Monoculture. Yeah. Tree farms are not forests. No. No. And they can't support the, the habitat that, that a forest like this could. Yeah. Yeah. I, getting to the, you you mentioned that um, it can be very transformative being out here, and I, that seems to be one of your passions is to have people out here so that and so that they can kind of connect with the wild and and heal from it. And I'm I'm wondering if you if there's any transformative stories that come to mind to you from people who've come out here or from you. Sure, um, it's definitely changed me just living by the creek. This is my first time living here full time, so through all the seasons, and that's been something to get used to as well as celebrate. Uh, I love spring buds, um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I guess for my dad, it's like legacy of conservation that I feel like championing, or I am championing. And his one thing he told me a, a long time ago is like he he just wants people to come out here. And have a, like a light footprint, but um, to fall in love with uh, this nature and this forest. And so everything I've done with like building the lodge and doing the Trout Creek thing has been to bring people out here. Not really much of a itinerary or anything. Just go out and experience for yourself and whatever's natural to you. So I, I've also brought like one story that comes to mind that I thought was really amazing. Uh, I brought a friend uh, that's a muralist and artist, Alison Kunath, up here, and she stayed and was the artist in residence for like a month and a half, two months. And she painted all the drawings on the teepee and did some prints. But while she was here, 
I set up like a table and easel for her in the middle of the creek on a rock for her to paint on. And she was living in a whiskey bear cabin, cabin four. And um, a friend of hers, grandmother, had just died and had come to her in a dream as a blue heron and had spoken to her and reassured her. And so she had commissioned Allison to paint a blue heron in honor of her grandmother to put on her altar. <clears throat> and the day that she set up her easel and went to go paint up the creek, a giant blue heron flew up the river and then turned left and went up the creek. And the creek is, you know, pretty overgrown. Like I said, we don't do forestry management and you're not supposed to take anything out of a creek, really. It creates a lot of like good habitat. So we're talking like a wingspan, I don't know, four feet or more. They're like really big birds. And so it like went through all these trees really close to the water and then alighted on a rock and stayed there for two days while she painted. Oh my God. Parent. What? Oh my God. So yeah, I thought that was quite bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is insane. So grandmother provided a, you know, she did a little posing. She posed pose for, for her the picture. Wow. And I had never seen a blue heron up here. Yeah. Yeah. Are they... Have you seen since some uh, this last summer? I saw a couple flying by on the on the river. Yeah, but I mean up the creek. It's, yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, dense. no, it's it is really dense up there. Yeah. Wow. So things like that, and amazing synchronicities, like we we're speaking of, you know, Erin McMurrow that's here right now with her book, uh, "Grounded: A Fierce Feminine Guide to Soil," and some other little things in there. She's she came up to visit six years ago, and I guess had the idea for the book then and is back visiting now and has her published book mm. and it's really amazing and she's just the synchronicities of her being here and other people meeting her as well as just the timing of things that are happening on this land um is unexplainable and i don't need to try to explain it yeah there's a lot of magic here i mean we were it was so there's a newly um, built bathhouse that's just about finished, but it's we're already starting to use it. And it has a sauna and a cedar hot tub and a cold plunge, um, clawfoot bathtub. It's it's really remarkable. And your dad built it um, out of the cedar that grows here. Absolutely beautiful. And the other night we were over there and there was all these different people. Some were workawares. I think Aaron actually that you speak of, the author of that book, was there. Katie May, all these different interesting people that have all been attracted here and also invited by you. And we're all naked in the bathhouse, hanging out in a cedar hot tub your dad built and then left back to the <laughs> back to Key West or and 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 as I was looking around, I was like, you weren't there, but it was so obvious that you were there. Like the spirit, you're like it this never would have happened if it wasn't for you. And it's and it's just very magical, and I'm very grateful for it. Spirits in the wood, you know? yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, it, it's. I don't know. I can't. I can't really understand what, how fate brought us here, but it feels very, very appropriate and very special. I I think maybe before we end, there's one other area I wanted to maybe just pry into a little. There's many other areas actually, but I think there's only one um, that for for today. Um, you're doing a lot of building projects on the land that are very interesting. There's already several teepees here. There's cabins along the creek that are beautiful. The lodge, I think, is this true that the main lodge that you built out of one tree has no bolts? Yeah, it's mortise and tenon. So, like, the the structure itself yeah. is a compression ring, four rafters that go into it. So, my brother took two days to do the trigonometry to figure out the angles to cut it so that it would drop wow. Uh, wow. level. And and then, yeah, there's pegs on the sill beams that hold them together. And 
Uh, the only, there's some like screws and stuff in the rafters. Okay. It, so a lot of these things are built, and, and you can see this with the bathhouse as well, with a lot of intention and care. There's a glorious uh, deck near the river. There's such a sense of creativity here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you've shared a little bit about you, you've been a longtime burner. Um, I think for like 10 years or something like that. And you shared some of your experiences on the playa. And I can see a lot of parallels to like how you approach the places here. And I wonder if maybe if you would share some of about that, um, particularly like some of that spirit, some of that attitude of how you go to the playa, because it seems very evident here too. And I, don't think I've had someone explain it to me as well as you did in a very short amount of time um, where I was like, Oh, okay. I get that a lot, a lot better. And so I wonder if you would talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I guess after the death of my mom, I was living in Australia and not dealing so well with her absence. And a friend of mine, Raul, the same guy that uh, we were talking narwhals at Esalen invited me to come to Burning Man which I didn't really know what it was. And I just said yes, uh, needing to like be back with people that knew my mom and, um, and to like properly grieve. And so I went to Burning Man and found the temple and have been going back every year since and bringing uh, my birthstone to leave at the temple for my mom. Um, so yeah, Burning Man is... Yeah, has been a transformative um, part of my life um, and very important to me. And I, I ended up uh, founding a camp with another friend, Ryan, and I was gifted an art car. <laughs> That's a narwhal <laughs> made by some guy I've never met named Poseidon. Um, <clears throat> so there's, you know, so, and I give a talk at, at center camp every year on unicorns and narwhals, uh, and bring a narwhal tusk and share. I was going to ask you if you have one. Yeah, I was gifted one by my best friend growing up, Simon Lange's parents, Gazelle and Quint. They were gifted one and they bequeathed it to me because they're like, you need this. <laughs> we don't need it. Wow. <laughs> So I've been able to educate a lot of people on the reality that narwhals exist mm-hmm. through that and Burning Man. Um, so founding a camp at Burning Man was, you know, a, a big undertaking. It's like a part-time job that you take on all year and um, gets you very organized, very proactive and uh, better at delegating and uh supporting people's like strengths and their creative endeavors through, you know, putting all that framework together so that they can shine. Mm. Um, and then at one point I just, I left Burning Man and just kept burning. You know, it's just like <laughs> the real world. You could just burn in the real world. So I just kept going, ended up, um, saying yes to a lot of things that were aligned and, Ended up at some place upstate New York, telling some stories, and that's how I got my job at the assemblage. They're like, "You're amazing. You have a job anytime you want it. Come to New York." What's the assemblage? That was a collaboration for the future of humanity. So it's bringing capital, technology, and consciousness together. So I was working with thought leaders uh, and hosting events. Um, in the city, we had three buildings that were co-working and co-living that were magic. And the <laughs> only, only reason I would have ever gone back to New York City, because mm. I'd spent, done a stint there after college and not really in love with cities, but this was quite a special endeavor. So I worked with you know, like Jason Silva and Dennis McKenna and uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, Jay Shetty, the monk, lots of monks and yeah. a lot of different people maps and Mm. so that was a fascinating yes i'm fully like and then that was burning man's Uh, it was like (laughs) the idea of yeah we had burning man parties in wall street on the roof trying to like you know so so what does it mean to be burning all the time 
I just like kind of flipped a switch at one point and just like the Burning Man isn't just there. It's just like you can just take those principles and you, into the default world. So what are the principles? How would you word them? Well, like participation, mm-hmm. presence, radical inclusivity. Yeah, I think like participation, not being like a spectator in life. I mean, I mean, presence too, like uh, having a meditation practice, trying to be as present as possible in every moment mm-hmm. and making the right choices, speaking with integrity. And like you were saying, I, I, our, our camp name is Mosaic. So the whole idea is there is like, there is no idea. It's like, it's a mosaic of people coming together, sharing their gifts. So like each year it's totally different what we, what we participate in, what we give to the playa. Mm. So it's, it's like tantric, you know, course yoga, a homecoming party, a narwhal that, you know, plays just funk. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the funky narwhal. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, have fun, play with it. There's a short life. Mm-hmm. Um, go big and like live your dreams. So then bringing that into this place, coming here, especially during the pandemic, I was living in a, on a horse ranch in upstate New York when COVID hit and we had a lot of people sick on the land and, and it just, it kind of seemed like Burning Man was every day. And I was like providing spaces and cooking for people and just doing a lot of things. I was like, yeah, Burning Man is not just for the playa. Mm. Um, actually, right now I'm wearing my Burning Man the <laughs> belt, belt, my utility belt, because like actually it comes in handy here. I got <laughs> all my bits here and my utility knife. Um, so yeah, building places and then, yeah, the feasts in the evening gathering like we did last night, connecting people that can have some sort of kismet synchronicity or build something together or share knowledge. All this will hopefully, you know, make the world a better place or enrich people's lives. And so, yeah, building up all this infrastructure is one thing and having these spaces is uh, one thing, but it's always the people uh, that matter the most. And there's, there can be a lot of, you know, interpersonal and personal things going on with different people that you don't always know. And so hopefully creating a safe space where people can share, feel seen, feel heard, makes for living a, a better, uh, a, 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 a life well lived and hopefully giving some tools and uh, learning. I love to learn. So we, we actually changed Burning Man to Learning Man. Cause you're just learning. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah. I get to learn from all these people that come through <laughs> here and, um, yeah, have a, just a learning yeah. man. You're just man. Learning, man. That's, I think that's the title of the episode. <laughs> just a learning I, and man. Crew, I and Q Rowan, just a learning man. I don't know how to end this. I, my, my heart <laughs> is so full with gratitude yeah. right now. I, I think, don't. Um, I know it's kind of cheesy, but I just want to confirm that I think you are making the world a better place. I think you've made the world a better place for us and a lot of people around here that I've seen. Um, and you have a very big heart and you're extraordinarily generous. So thank you for everything you've done. And every time I hang out with you, I, I fall in love with you even more. <laughs> <laughs> love you guys it's so great having you here on the land love you too yeah. you. see you far fully far out people <laughs> well thank you for listening thank you my heart is like blown wide open right now I can't this was so Narwhals special to Trout Creek Wilderness <laughs> to Burning, Burning Man, Man. So uh, much emotions. Like we, we ended the conversation all pretty teary eyed and then uh, both Ian and I started crying. I, I cried too. Oh, you did? I, did. I didn't I did know. Well. This was my third time crying today, but <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, she actually, and if you count last night, it's the fourth time. She, she she ended last night crying, and then started this morning crying. It's and not. Then, it's not a. It's no, not, it's not like very distressed or, or whatever. Yeah, it's just yeah. like emotions are flowing out of me. Well, I feel like we just scratched the surface with Ian. I hope we have another opportunity to have. I think mom there will be many more because I'm just continuously blown away. Um, by what he's doing. He's and just a kind of person that's just, he's so inspiring. Yeah. You want to be around him. Yeah. And I, I totally recommend uh, for anyone who was inspired by him or that story, spending some time on this land that him and his family have been protecting um, for uh, centuries uh, at this point. At this point. And uh, it's absolutely magical and beautiful. It's called Trout Creek. <laughs> Trout Creek. <laughs> Trout Creek Wilderness Lodge, yes. and you can just Google it, or you can also find it in the show notes at thefarout.life. Well, with that being said, you know how to support this podcast. We're going to tell you anyways, because we know that a lot of you are trying to find a way to support this podcast. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge. Um, you can, first of all, you can share this episode with a friend. We know a lot of you have been doing this recently and it's showing. It is like our stats are blowing a little bit through the roof more than we've ever experienced. So thank you so much for I that support. I cannot, I cannot credit this to my mom sharing it with her friends. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to hear that now. I'm done sharing I, my it. My mom then. doesn't have that many friends. And that's, oh no, my that's, God. No, 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 no. I, I mean, in comparison to the numbers, my mom has plenty of friends. She's actually a very social person. She is. She takes care of a lot, quite a lot the of, beautiful a lot of people. Social hummingbird. Yes. All right. The second way you can support this podcast is you can leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Yes. Yes. That helps. That helps feed the beast. Um, and third way you can support this podcast is financially uh, by becoming a member at patreon.com slash the far out couple. Mm -hmm. You can send us a one-time donation. Uh, our PayPal email address is in the show notes at the far life. That's also where all the show notes for this episode and all episodes live. And the third way you can support us is uh, by buying some wonderful organic raw cacao we have an affiliate link it's in the show notes as well treat yourself yeah it's great and i'm gonna i'm gonna maybe make one last invitation that has nothing to do with supporting us you know if you felt inspired by this conversation maybe find your whatever your passion pro like whatever it is that nonprofit, whatever go maybe send them some money or give them some of your time yeah because uh we need people doing that kind of work Yes, we do. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank we'll you, see Roxanne. you next week. Toodles. Toodles.